Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined once again by Andrew Pettiprin. Now, Andrew, we were not supposed to be here today. They said we wouldn't do it. We said we wouldn't do it. You were going to be going to be in the UK, wandering the Houses of Parliament, doing various filming things with Bishop Barron, I think. And then, sadly, the uh, reign of Elizabeth II, one of the longest serving monarchs, maybe the longest serving monarch in British history, the finally, longest, yes. the longest serving, finally came to a, a conclusion. Uh, the entire state, uh, the entire kingdom is mourning her loss. And obviously, I mean, the passing of a monarch is almost literally a once in a lifetime event. I suppose it's certainly a once in a lifetime event for the monarch themselves, but uh, for, for most people, it's not a common occurrence. So this is a very infrequent event. She was born, I think, in 1926, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So she is the only monarch that the vast, vast majority of Britons can even recall. Uh, and I mean, there's probably a, probably you can count on two hands, the number of Britons who can actively remember a different monarch because they would have been, it would have had to be, you know, four or five when she came to the throne. Uh, so this is obviously a momentous occasion for the people of the UK. Uh, it throws the state into some degree of upheaval, not violent upheaval, but just some, some degree of chaos when this happens. So your trip postponed, you're no longer there. You are here in the U S which means we can bring what a week to our listeners, but I'm sorry for your sake, Andrew, that you did not get to do that. Hopefully you get it rescheduled soon. Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed I didn't get to go. I understand why the decision was made to postpone our trip because a lot of what we were going to do was kind of impossible. Um, but uh, seeing the crowds in London and um, yeah, just thinking about the era that has come to an end with the death of Elizabeth II does really make me wish that I, I had been there. Um, when I was in England in the early 2000s, in 2002, I was there um, when... Uh, the queen celebrated her golden jubilee and it was also the year that princess margaret died and the queen mother died so there was a lot of this like royal stuff that was going on during the time that i was living in england and as an american i never really i never really thought about the royal family very much i remember when princess diana died i remember that was like a big shock but um i really i really liked it i really i really thought it was an interesting thing and a very powerful um, a very powerful symbol of national unity and national life. You know, my concern now with the end of Elizabeth's reign, as I feel about the the passing of her whole generation, really, is that um, the world that they came up in is just so unlike the world that we live in today. And it really did us good to benefit from the wisdom that people who had taken shelter from bombs during World War II and people who had lived through the Great Depression, uh, people like my grandfather, people like Queen Elizabeth, you know, um, it really did us a lot of good to, to have that. And um, I, I really think something major has changed in the world, uh, not only with her death, but as her generation passes. So this is a big moment. I and, certainly, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I do not disagree. I do want to say uh, uh, you're, you're not really a self-promoter, Andrew, but I would point our listeners to your article that I will link in the show notes from Catholic World Report. You wrote it just yesterday, or it was published just yesterday, and it is called mm -hmm. The Death of Queen Elizabeth II and the Growing Cult of Disenchantment. I certainly don't disagree with anything that you were saying here in the article or that you just said now, Andrew, but can we peel back the onion a little bit and, and just examine why, why a monarchy matters? And I think this is an important question to answer because it has become very fashionable today to just say, hey, look, we should every country should be a republic or at least be based on small R Republican principles. We should never have a monarchy. No one should be born into 
uh, into wealth or status. That should be something that is earned. Uh, the the British monarchy stands in obviously stark contradiction to that. You have this royal family that is born born into their positions of status, and that is simply that. Uh, and even though the queen does not bear any formal authority in the UK, she certainly bears a ton of symbolic authority, even to such a degree that she has to accept the prime minister's resignation before the prime minister resigns. Now, to my knowledge, there's never been a time when she has not accepted the prime minister's resignation. And it's not like she actually serves as an obstacle to the various machinations of government. But still, there's a there's a more, uh, what we could probably argue is something more than symbolic, but less than formal status that the monarchy has in Britain. And that is something that does stand in contradiction to this sort of very American, again, small R Republican principles that many people today espouse. So why do you think the monarchy still matters? And what what well, potentially have we lost with the death of Elizabeth II? Well, on the first point, I mean, it, it, there is something powerful about having a person as the symbol of sovereignty, you know, whereas like in the United States, I mean, what, what we have, you know, presidents come and go and presidents are certainly should ideally be um, agents of unity, for sure. You know, not always the case, rarely the yep. case, maybe even. But you know what? What are what do we have as kind of the transcendent thing that we can look to? I mean, is it like the Constitution? Is it the flag? Is it like what symbol do we have that we sort of like that that doesn't change from regime to regime, from year to year, no matter what's going on, right? Um, the monarchy in in Great Britain, as it as it currently is. It, it does that. I mean, these people, right, as you said, for 70 years, people have had the same face on their money, the same face on their stamps. They've said the same name, their national anthem. They have sung about this person, right? God save the queen. And now they'll be singing God save the king. So I think that there's something to be said about having a person as kind of this symbol of sovereignty. Um, and I, you know, maybe we'll get into this actually when we get into our close read today. But I mean, I, I am certainly skeptical of absolute authority being vested in any individual. And I would be particularly worried if it was somebody who wasn't, you know, answerable to the people. So absolute monarchy probably isn't my cup of tea. But um, but I do think that there's something about monarchy, the way that it exists in England and maybe a few other places that um, that is an opportunity to kind of create this sort of link to the past, this like, you know, um, a way to kind of bring timelessness into time. Um, so I, I really appreciate that. You know, whether King Charles will be able to kind of preserve that, that his mother has been able to do, it remains to be seen. I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical just because of, frankly, just kind of a bias I have against his whole generation. I mean, we, we've sort of been living with baby boomers for a long time who in many respects are, are amazing people, but also have been able to like enjoy the spoils of their parents' victories in a way that I don't think has been entirely responsible. Um, and uh, so, you know, King Charles maybe is kind of the, one of the, one of the most famous kind of embodiments of that, uh, of what that means. You know, I mean, he has everything and yet he has tended to come across to the world as being a little bit selfish, which is kind of the exact thing we don't want to see out of somebody who's in a situation like that. Not materially selfish, but just in the way that he's sort of, you know, his personal life and stuff like that. His so, relationships, yeah. His relationships, you know, seeming to put other things ahead of duty, which then would cause people to say, well, hey, maybe this isn't such a good idea. I, I think it still is a good idea. I hope that he does a good job and I hope that it carries forward. I think it's a wonderful thing. 
it's not something that I think you can sort of go back and create after the fact. I don't think we could really create it in the United States uh, in, in our current circumstances, but they have it. So can you imagine though, who, who would be, if we tried to make a king or a queen, if we try to install a monarch today, who would, who would end up, you know, let's say we had, let's say we had an election for this monarch today, who would be the monarch? I, all I can say, Zach, is I will not seek, but if called upon, <laughs> if called I upon, will, you will do serve. It. I will enough. serve. I, you would have my vote, Andrew. King, King Bedebrin. What, 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 what royal name would you take for your, uh, your dynasty? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I love my last name. So the Pedeprin dynasty, I mean. It's pretty solid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, King Andrew is, a, is King, pretty good as well. Certainly yeah. I'd keep Andrew as my, as yeah. my royal name. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It'd be good. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, think about the monarchy? Did you experience it when you lived in England or like have any feelings about it? Uh, you know, there's no, I, I mean, I didn't really experience it in any meaningful sense. Uh, I do appreciate the parliamentary monarchy. I think the parliamentary monarchy is a, um, perhaps the best form of man-made government that that we have uh, known hitherto this date. My only experience with the crown from England comes actually from my wife. So it was really her, her experience, not mine. She was on Oxford's High Street and the queen had been visiting town that day. And so there were just crowds of people thronging each side of the lane where they knew that her her motorcade was going to pass through. And my wife had just emerged from a shop and saw the queen's motorcade pass by the queen's car passed her. And my wife saw the queen doing her little, her little queen wave, just, just really a, a little small sort of mousy, mousy mm -hmm. sized woman. She was not a big woman, uh, doing her little wave in the back of the car. And that was it. That was my wife's fleeting encounter with the crown. Uh, my, my greater exposure with the crown, uh, as as a symbol of the monarchy, uh, really comes through the TV show The Crown. Have you seen The Crown? Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. I yeah, I wrote a review of the last season. Oh, great. And, okay. Uh, yeah, it's a great show. I don't think I saw the last season, but I did mm -hmm. watch enough of that show to see. I think what they were doing with the the arc of the series. You 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 clearly start with uh, the abdication uh, of the throne and the ascent to the throne of Elizabeth II in the 1940s, right? Or was it fifties? 52 uh, yeah 52 was when she became queen yeah uh and that was very clearly a display of her selflessness these principles of country before self of sacrificing one's own desires for the duties of one's family the duties required by the nation etc and so that was elizabeth ii's entire mantra when she ascended to the throne and i think people took her seriously for that and took her seriously in part because of that uh, and then we, you know, throughout her, throughout her time, we see her, um, uh, princess Margaret, right. Have her various escapades and sort of get down mired in all the Royal family drama. We see this obviously persist today in, in certain personalities like the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, for example, to some degree in Charles, which is explored in the show as well. And so I think you actually see this sort of this, 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 um, degradation of the crown or at least of the Royal family. Perhaps not of the crown, only because of Elizabeth II, who's, who's there as the sort of distinguished monarch holding the throne. I think what's clear, though, in the crown itself, the TV show, is that her ideals, her ethos as a monarch are really from another time. And there isn't someone around her right now, certainly not the person who's now sitting on the throne, King Charles III, uh, certainly not anyone else that I know of in the royal family, um, who can take the throne with the same sort of ideal, the same ethos, the same humility, the same sense of obligation and, and filial duty that she did. And yeah. so I, I share your concern that the monarchy is in a much 
worse place for it. With that said, I don't pretend to be a major monarchy watcher. I sort of tune in every now and then when there's a, a big royal family event like the death of Queen Elizabeth II, for example. Um, but I don't pretend to be an expert uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I do find all of this rather fascinating. Um, but yeah, I think that's basically my thoughts on the, the monarch. Yeah, the last season of The Crown, by the way, really makes your point even stronger. I mean, it, it really focuses on the children, on her four children as they sort of grow into their mature years. Okay. And there really is this sense at the end of the season that it's sort of like, oh, no. It's done. It's done. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that something has gone horribly wrong from one generation to the next. Um, it's really brilliant. I think the last season is is really excellent, uh, riveting TV. And, you know, the depiction of Charles is probably, as I, I talk about this a little bit in my Catholic World Report article, but I mean, the depiction of Charles is, sure, is surely a caricature to some degree. But it's also the kind of thing where... I think most of us would watch it and go, it, it certainly bears a resemblance to, you know, certainly what is, what is conveyed are the concerns that, that seem pretty realistic and reasonable. So anyway, we shall see. I mean, with her passing, it's just incredible. You know, uh, her first prime minister, Winston Churchill was first elected to I parliament mean, in 1900. Amazing. That's amazing. He was yeah. first a parliamentarian under queen Victoria. I think about this with my own grandparents. I mean, like yeah. my my grandmother's grandfather fought in the Civil War, right? Wow. I mean, I knew my grandfather, my grandmother very well. She knew her grandfather very well. He fought in the yeah. Civil War. You know, that my grandfather amazing. that I write about in the I mentioned him in this in this article. You know, he went to church in a horse and buggy in in rural Michigan in 1915. You know, um, it's just a different world, right? And it's just wild to think how actually close the generations are, um, but also how quickly we can just sort of forget. As one generation, we, we become passes. unmoored from the world of our fathers and mothers. Even yeah, that is remarkable. Uh, yeah, maybe onto better things, but I don't know. Our close read today is a bit dismal, uh, Andrew. Should mm. we start with the misinformation segment? Let's do it. Let's have fun. Okay, some fun. Here we go. We're all about fun, unless uh, all your selections week. are doom and gloom. Also, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. All right. Um, the first. This is uh, if it's true. This is not a news article, but a press release from a company called Twilio. Twilio is sharing that they have released, laid off many of their current employers. And in this long, long press release describing why they made the decision and how difficult decision this decision was for them and how heartbroken they are to let go of these super talented people, et cetera, et cetera, they include this line. The question is, how did we decide which roles would be impacted? And they said, as you all know, we are committed to becoming an anti-racist slash anti-oppression company. Layoffs like this can have a more pronounced impact on marginalized communities. So we were particularly focused on ensuring our layoffs while a business necessity today were carried out through an anti-racist slash anti-oppression lens. All right. So that's item one. Twilio, the tech company, selected people for layoffs based on anti-racist, anti-oppression uh, Criteria. Okay. The second from The Atlantic, staff writer Mo Durdich, if this is true, uh, in an article about, in, in an article of paying tribute in some ways, or at least talking about September 11th, uh, this article blamed the patriarchy and white men for the disastrous tragedy of September 11th. Quote, if it's true, the same order that gave rise to Donald Trump, the milieu of seething white men bent on exacting their distorted ideas of justice throughout the world, 
Is the order that caused 21 Islamic extremists on that Tuesday in 2001 to fly fully laden aircraft into skyscrapers. The imagery, even the transformation of the phallic icons of American prestige into swirling infernos is hard to miss, end quote. All right, that's item two from the Atlantic. And item three, if it's true, this is from the Daily Wire. Headline is watchdog to probe IRS after hundreds of employees failed to pay taxes. Uh, Just the first couple sentences here. The Department of the Treasury's internal watchdog will audit the IRS to ensure that its own agents are paying taxes. The audit was initiated at the request of Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa following a Democratic plan for 87,000 new employees of the Tax Enforcement Agency. So if it's true, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of IRS employees who are not paying their taxes, and the Department of Treasury is now auditing the IRS itself for the tax malfeasance of its own employees. Okay, that is item number three. So those are the three. Number one, the tech tech company uh, using anti-racist principles to determine who to lay off. Number two, the Atlantic blaming white men for September 11th. And number three, the Daily Wire reporting that this watchdog is probing the IRS uh, to audit their employees who potentially did not pay their taxes. So what do you think? Okay, good work. It, this is this is tough. I think they all three could be true. Um, let's start. Let's start with number three. I think number three. I think number three is true, whether you made it up or not. I mean, I think there must be lots and lots of IRS employees who haven't paid taxes because they're just ordinary people. So um, I'm going to say number three is true. Let's start there. You have gotten it correct. Number three okay. is in fact true. This is you know I don't know exactly what to make of this one, Andrew. It is true that the IRS, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act as I understand it, at least, is hiring 87,000 new people, including, by the way, 70,000 armed agents. Do you know why the IRS needs armed agents, Andrew? Because I certainly Whoa. do not. Yeah. I don't. Uh, it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's true, too. I saw a, like a, a training video for, or a recruiting video for IRS uh, armed agents, and it was a, a bit disturbing. I just don't know why these people need need to carry around firearms but I didn't even know this I would have ju- I would have just assumed the enforcement agents for the IRS were just FBI agents or something one one might think that Andrew huh. one might think that but Ooh. no apparently hmm. 70,000 of these will be armed so now there will be 170,000 agents under the Bureau of Tax Collection so they're basically doubling themselves with the Inflation Whoa. Reduction Act and they're adding 70,000 plus armed agents which is I mean, imagine someone showing up at your doorstep to audit you and they're carrying firearms. That's a bit intimidating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, so the Department of Treasury is auditing these. But the reason why I don't know exactly what to make of this story, although I certainly don't doubt its veracity, it just seems a little bit p- politically motivated by uh, Republican senators to go after the IRS for pursuing their expansionist plan to add 87,000 new employees, et cetera. So I don't know exactly what to make of it. I'm sure I'm sure it's true, as you pointed out, that hundreds of IRS employees have failed to pay their taxes. I see the uh, the auditing by the Treasury Office, directed by the uh, by the Senate, as a, a bit of a a bit of a you know political back and forth, though. Yeah, you're probably right. Okay, well, um, that leaves me with one and two. So I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that one is true, and I'm going to say that you cooked up a good quote in two. Uh, so one is one is true, two is false. <laughs> you are correct. You got All it right. Uh, I thought you might like the the towering phallic icons of American prestige in the <laughs> the quote from the second story. That was a really really good quote. I, <laughs> it was too good. So I I, I 
I thought that had to be the one. Um, yes, so that is correct. The second story was definitely false. The first story is true. So there is this company named Twilio. I don't even know exactly what Twilio does. I'm on their site right now trying to find out. Uh, I'm on the Twilio blog, I guess, more accurately. Let me go to Twilio.com and see how they describe themselves. Twilio.com, data-driven customer engagement at scale. Twilio powers personalized interactions and trusted global communications to connect you with customers. All right, they're trying to, I don't know, every tech company is trying to change the world by overhauling mm -hmm. data and yada, yada, yada. All right, so that's Twilio. But yeah, so they have this long, long press release. They're so sad. They're laying off everybody, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then under the heading, how did we decide which roles would be impacted? <laughs> they, they just, just straight up admit we just looked at things through a racist or a racial lens and we, mm -hmm. you know, use that to inform our decisions, which is honestly, I mean, regardless of what you think of the decision, to me, it is a stunning admission from a company basically saying, hey, we're going to open our, oh, we're going to open ourselves up to all kinds of lawsuits from our right. now disgruntled employees who we just laid off by telling them that one of the factors we used to lay them off was, uh, was their race, their, you know, their immutable characteristics. So what a remarkable choice by the CEO of Twilio. I, um, you know, I, that takes that takes bravery, if nothing else. Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see some lawsuits there and maybe from other companies or institutions who are just saying right out in the open that they're not going to follow the law. I would have to think we will for sure. Let me, I'm, I'm on Twitter right now. Let's see. Twilio lawsuit. I mean, I'm certainly not the only person saying this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Uh, Fortune even ran an article about this. Twilio may have just made the first big, quote, anti-racist layoffs. So, mm. yeah, there's a, yeah, this is, this is definitely a class action waiting to happen, I think. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I don't know. Mm. I'm also, by the way, I, I, you know, I think this is, uh, is certainly contrary to plain reason and should not be allowed, Andrew, but I'm not at all confident that the courts today would find this to be inimical to our values of equality as a mm -hmm. nation. Uh, equal protection under the constitution and all that. I'm not sure that this would be seen as, as violating that, that fundamental principle, but we, we shall see. We shall. All right. Well, that is the misinformation segment. Shall we go on to do our close read today? I think we should. All right. What do we have today? Andrew? All right. Let's cue it up. Well, you sent this to me, but I was really, really glad to take a look at it. It is a little bit a little bit depressing, but I think also very informative and interesting. And the article we're looking at is by Edward Fazer, who is a philosopher. Uh, he's written a lot about apologetics and um, he, he's written, I haven't read any of his books actually, but I, I do like some of the things that I have read by him and I've interacted with him a little bit. I have not met him in the flesh, but um, oh, you have... You have one so of this, books. yeah, this is his five proofs book, which I highly, yes. highly recommend to anyone who's interested in philosophical proofs for the existence of God. You might think, I mean, Fazer is a well-known Thomist, and so you might think that he's just sort of re-exposing Aquinas's five, uh, five uh, ways, but that's not what he's doing. Aquinas, one of Aquinas's five ways is one of his five proofs here, but he takes from Aristotle, Augustine, uh, Leibniz, and Plotinus to do the other four. Um, and it's, I, I find it to be very philosophically rigorous in a, uh, you know, semi, semi approachable sort of way. It's, it's written for the layman, but I would say the sort of interested layman, uh, mm -hmm. but very, very good. So if you have, if you yourself are interested in this sort of discussion or you have friends who are saying, Hey, why do you believe in God? This book, five proofs for the existence of God is a very good one. I really like the way he thinks. And I actually, I listened to him on a podcast recently and I thought to myself, I think I'd like to hang out with this guy too. He seems like well, an interesting Well, maybe we fellow. should bring him on for a, what a week, Andrew. Let's invite maybe him. Maybe we should. Yeah. Dr. Fazer, if you're listening, 
we're going to talk about your article and uh, maybe we can talk about it with you and some other stuff too. Let's do it. I'll reach out to him. We'll see if he wants to come on. Yeah, for sure. Well, this article we're looking at is from the post-liberal order and uh, which is a, a venture, newish venture, I guess, by a, a number of people. I think probably like the biggest intellectual engine of it would be kind of Patrick Deneen, I think. Yeah. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, I think so. His... But it's, but it's Deneen. I think it's Gladden, Pappen, mm -hmm. uh, Saraba Mari, and mm -hmm. Chad Pecknold. I think those mm -hmm. are the the four originals. But there are, I mean, Adrian, actually, maybe Adrian Vermeule is one of the four, too. Yeah, I think he is as uh, well. Maybe, yeah. maybe, I, maybe I counted one who's not in them. But anyway, yeah, there's this like this growing movement, this growing strain within intellectual. Well, it's not even really within intellectual conservatism necessarily, but they're mostly intellectual conservatives uh, who are embracing this like post-liberal idea for the future of the political order in the United States and around the world. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that uh, Fazer's article here necessarily completely embraces the idea of post-liberalism. Maybe that's something we can discuss, but. Uh, but it's certainly pertinent to the discussions and the debates that are happening in this kind of intellectual circle yeah. on the right. I see um, this as I see this article as more in line with the Deneen why liberalism has yes, failed. Yes, than that, the, that's like, why I raised Deneen's name, and I think like yeah. that. I think it becomes a little bit. It becomes apparent in the third section. I think yes. most of all. But um, just to kind of like catch our, our listeners up on this, I really think this is an accessible article. I think that people would really benefit from looking at it. It's called Perfect World Disorder. And um, Fazer says in the article that he chose that title based on a sneaker pimp song. Do you know, are you familiar with the sneaker pimp? <laughs> not at all. No, I, I was I was impressed with his pop culture knowledge because I was not, I'd never heard of the sneaker pimps. Have you? That's one of the reasons I think I want to hang out with him. Um, okay. Yeah, so the Sneaker Pimps were a uh, a British trip-hop band from the 90s. And, you know, they're kind of similar to like Portishead or Everything But The Girl. Like, I, I like all that stuff. I, I didn't okay. know the Sneaker Pimps super well. But the song, uh, Perfect World Disorder, is – or the song is from the, – the line is from a song called Velvet Divorce, which is actually on the soundtrack to a movie called A Life Less Ordinary, which is directed by Danny Boyle stars ewan mcgregor cameron diaz um it's one of those like it's a great 90s movie you know great yeah. soundtrack and this is this is on it so i thought that was kind of cool that he, he chose that as a title but anyway um he lays out in these three sections of this article called perfect world disorder this whole idea of like okay if we're if we're if order is what we need uh what is order and then what is disorder? And so if we're if we're in a, if we have been striving for a kind of liberal order and now we're looking more towards a post-liberal order, what are we even talking about with these terms? So he starts his first section, and I think this is the one that maybe I'll just kind of sum up the most here, and then sure. we can launch into two and three. But he in the first section, he he very straightforwardly, I mean, like in a very good pedagogical way, walks us through as if we've never seen it before. Um a basic kind of like Western understanding of the way we have tended to think about how a thing comes to be. Um, and, and so it's, it's like straight up Aristotle's physics here, the, the four causes. Uh, there are four ways, Aristotle says, things come to be. Material, formal, efficient, and final. And, and these the are not when he says four ways, right? It's not that there. It's not that it's one of the four. But no, no, no. Everything, no. everything has is all four. four. Right. Yeah. Everything is all four. Right. Everything is the materials. Everything is the way the materials are arranged. Everything is the kind of physical process that we can describe. And then finally, the final cause is essentially the answer to the question: Why? What is a mm -hmm. thing for? Why does it exist? Um, and this is what this is what we call teleology. That everything has a telos. Everything has an end. 
this is this is so important to Aristotle. He's having debates way back in the ancient world that we're still having today. I mean, there was this group called the Mechanists that essentially said, no, not everything has a, has a reason for being. Everything is just random. And Aristotle's like, nope, everything is not just random. Everything, everything has a reason for being. Now, it gets picked up in the Middle Ages by Thomas Aquinas. And um, Ed Fazer talks about Aquinas quite a bit in here too and quotes him saying that the end of a human being is, quote, to know the true and the good, we are well-ordered to the extent that our lower appetites are subordinated to this pursuit. So again, to, to borrow another pop culture reference, um, Guns N' Roses' first album was called Appetite for Destruction. We all have an appetite for destruction. And so the end of a human being is in a sense to overcome that appetite, to subordinate it to this greater good, which is to know, to know the truth and to know good, who is God himself, right? Now, Phaser then says, okay, when we're talking about disorder, Disorder is something that can affect us in three different ways. And he, he makes reference to, like Aquinas, to these three terms, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are these three ways that we can sort of attach to disorder. And Phaser starts with flesh. He says, let's start with flesh, okay? So flesh is the first one that we start with because it's us. It's within Disorder begins with us because we're fallen creatures, we're fallen individuals. And so we have always this struggle within us to align our will to the will that is true and good, right? Um, and St. Paul talks about this in Romans, in Galatians. James talks about this in the New Testament. And it's not, a, it's not like a Gnostic division of the flesh and the spirit. It's just this term flesh just refers to kind of this the, the appetite, the thing that's disordered about ourselves that make it difficult to choose what we're supposed to choose. So that's the flesh. Then there's the world, right? It's a fallen world. So there's all this broken stuff everywhere that could hit us. There's like broken, you know, in a sense, there's like broken glass. There's like stuff flying at us all the time. The world itself is dis, when it is disordered, it can disorder us as individuals. Um, and then finally, Oh, and so the world, you know, Jesus talks about the world a lot, right? In John's mm -hmm. gospel, the world, the world, the world, right? And then finally, there's the devil. Um, so in addition to just the problem of our own individual will, the problem with the broken world, then there's also darkness. There is, there's evil. There is the, the, there is the prince of the world. There's the devil who is trying to corrupt us. And it's all three of these things that sort of are taken into consideration, right? Which is why we always want to be careful if somebody says like, the devil made me do it. It's like, well, maybe yes. the devil made you do it, right? But there's also your own will and there's also the brokenness of the world. There's all kinds of reasons that explain why things get disordered, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, you know, those are kind of the major points that he wants to talk us through in that first section. Um, and then he kind of ends on this, this notion of the importance of conscience that um, a well-formed conscience always is there to help us resist giving into our appetites. And then it is also there to remind us to repent and to start afresh when we have given into them, right? This is just sort of classic stuff. But he says in, in the second section, and maybe I'll throw it over to you on this part. He says, we may have reached a, a point now in the, the liberal order in kind of Western civilization, whatever we want to call it, where it's not just that, you know, it's not just that things have kind of like fallen away a bit that make it more difficult for human beings to choose the good, but we may be in a place now where the world has chosen a positive disorder. Like, in other words, it's like we're living in an upside down world, 
where mm-hmm. it's not just that we sort of all know what we should and shouldn't do and the world's broken so stuff gets messed up and we all get that but rather the world is in is in a sense saying the things that we used to say are bad or actually good or at any rate there is no choice there is no good there is no bad right yeah and then he kind of ends the whole piece looking forward to kind of what to make of this disorder so maybe i'll throw it to you if there's anything you want to like go back to in that first section or maybe just take and run take the ball and run with uh this positive disorder idea yeah let's let's talk about the positive disorder a little bit so then in section two he talks about positive disorder and basically says you know here's order as i've just laid it out order is when all of the things all, all of the all of the various parts of a whole are integrated with each other in the place where they're supposed to be operating in the way they're supposed to be all incoherent operation towards the end or the telos as you pointed out andrew uh, at which they're supposed to be aiming right everything's working together go, driving towards the right goal etc that is essentially the essence of order disorder happens when the various sort of corrective mechanisms to keep the order in place are no longer functioning and so as an example that might be when a government no longer you know one of the main purposes of government is to is to uh, prevent crime right punish crime via you know proactive policing or reactive uh reactive consequences when the government no longer does that that introduces an element of disorder because now there's no corrective for people who are violating the civil law and that's that's disorder but then it gets interesting because then he talks about this idea of perfect or complete disorder hence the name perfect world disorder uh borrowed from the sneaker pimp song and uh phaser says that perfect or complete disorder happens not simply when the sort of corrective authority the governing forces stop doing their job but actually start uh in an in a perverse way uh undercutting the order that should be happening right actively subverting the order that the governing authority is supposed to be governing that is where the perfect or complete disorder happens he goes on to say and i'll quote him directly here this for example the the perfect disorder occurs in the individual human being when his mind is enthralled to an ideology that directs him to live contrary to the natural law it happens in society when its governing institutions are dominated by such an ideology the church meanwhile cannot fall entirely or cannot entirely fall into such a perversion of governance given the divine promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against her but something approximating this perverse misgovernance can occur temporarily if large numbers of bishops and other churchmen fall into heresy as has occasionally occurred in church history such as during the arian crisis Worst of all, and this is the important part. So we, so he's, he's outlined these these aspects, right? This is how uh, perfect disorder happens for the individual. It's when you become enthralled to this ideology that that decrees that you live in a way that is contrary, actually, to the law, actively subverts that that natural law. Happens in society when the same governing authorities in society are basically requiring people to live contrary to the natural law because of this ideology that holds them in thrall and it happens in the church when you know large numbers perhaps even a majority of its churchmen and clergy and lay faithful have pursued something other than the truth and fallen into heresy and then he says worst of all would be a scenario and now i'm back to directly quoting him would be a scenario where radical disorientation of this kind exists in all of these orders at once where large numbers of individual human beings are enthralled to an ideology contra naturum which means contra nature where the governing authorities of states and other large-scale and social institutions impose this impose this malign ideology from above and where even many churchmen cease resisting it or even sympathize with it themselves this would be perfect world disorder western civilization appears currently to be approaching something like this condition all right so this i think is this is a uh, the main thesis that he has here 
that you know we've talked about order and disorder and we can sort of we can definitely clearly see that there are what we would we would think of as order we should think of as order and there are elements of disorder introduced into that and there are even times where the governing authority is introducing disorder but maybe we haven't thought about it this way before that all of these elements the world of flesh and the devil at all levels of human existence the the sort of divine level at the church the societal level at the government and the level of the individual all of those governing authorities are actually actively subverting and introducing disorder actively into the order that would otherwise persist. And that is the perfect world disorder that he is arguing for. Yeah, exactly. And then, he, he, you know, I, he, right after the section that you were just reading from, you know, he sort of fleshes out then how, you know, how each of these disorders sort of looks, you know, um, he has this, this just kind of wild turn of phrase where he, uh, he, so, oh, let me back up a second and say, you know, he's from the beginning and then it sort of runs through. He's very yeah. concerned about the, um, the status of the family, right? That like the family has, you know, that, that in a sense, like touches on all three of the, you know, it's, it's how the individual, it's sort of the end it's how the individual relates first of all, to the rest of the world. You know, it's how, it's how groups of people then relate to the larger society. And then, you know, likewise, it's sort of um, an, an important, you know, place in relation to these sort of larger questions, eternal questions too, right? And so as the family kind of gets contorted and, and you know, kind of defined in a back, backwards logical way or something like that, then there's like a big problem there. And he says, the traditional conception of a society as an extension of the family is effectively replaced by the model of society as a political alliance of atomized onanists. And if that any was, of our- that's, that's the best line in the whole piece, yeah. I, I mean, that, I yeah, I started, underlined it, circled it. That I, I really had never, never seen anything put quite like that before. If any of our listeners aren't sure what onanists are, they can, well, we won't look tell them. The they dictionary. can go and look it yeah. up in the dictionary. But I, I just thought that was- that was quite a way to put it, you know. Um, but it, but it's but it's right. I mean, this whole this whole final section of his piece uh, delves into, and it's it's a it's a very superficial. I mean, it's it's deep in the sense that you know it's um, he, he's drawing on deep ideas, but it's superficial in the sense that it's short. He doesn't have time to do the entire diagnosis here, but he explores the you know the briefly surveys the corpus of Western philosophy and how secular Western philosophy has reduced us to this sort of atomized onanism. It has made man his own God. It has made the desire of the individual uh, the most important thing uh, in the entire universe. And that is what he says is basically the, the logical terminus. The logical terminus is that each of us become a God unto ourselves. And we end up in this, uh, in this position in which the world, the flesh and the devil are introdu introducing actively disorder into the, uh, into the political order at the individual, social and uh, divine levels. Yeah, and here as we get into the third section of his essay, um, here is where I think there's a lot of overlap with Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed. Um, because, you know, one of Deneen's points, which was so provocative, really, when the book came out, nowadays you kind of hear this sort of stuff, but I mean, he really, really made a splash. And and our listeners may not know, they, maybe they do, if they know who Deneen is, but I mean, President Obama read his book. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's he's, Deneen definitely seems like a man of the right, but his ideas are are definitely filtering through to, to other people who are thinking about politics and uh, the organization of society and stuff. But I mean, one of Deneen's most provocative claims really is that, that there were problems baked, baked into liberalism from the beginning. 
Right. Um, and and that is a that's a contentious claim to be sure. But I think that I think that the way that Phaser talks about it here is helpful, and and I think it it does sort of make the point, right? Like he's saying in this one section, um, you know, he's he sort of makes the point that okay, uh, modern science denies final cause, like. You know, mm-hmm. it's, science sort of says we're we're not interested. There is no why. It doesn't there matter. There is no why. You yeah. Know, not right, not, not the, only are we not interested in it, but there is no why. Yeah. There is no why. Right. Um, and so, so he says, denying final cause was essential to denying that we have obligations to a larger social order by nature rather than by consent. I think that is a very subtle move that he makes there that I think really explains a lot, right? And then he goes on to say, it was essential to modern liberalism's project of making society a matter of choice or contract, right? The social contract, whatever. I mean, it just goes on and on and on from there, right? Like we don't think in terms of what is what it is natural for us, right? We think in terms of like, what do we consent to? Um, which obviously it's way bigger. It's, it's a very big very big thing to discuss. It's more complicated than that. And I think that there could be good arguments to push back a little bit against where Phaser is landing here. But, um, but I think he's really onto something. Well, I mean, cards on the table. I also do. I, um, I'm sympathetic. Uh, you know, I maybe not wholly, wholly in agreement with, but I'm very sympathetic to Deneen's claims, um, about liberalism and whether or not liberalism has failed. And I'm very sympathetic. I think I do wholeheartedly agree with everything that Fazer is saying in this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, mm-hmm. uh, when he talks about this, this whole, this whole idea of not simply, not simply not asking, not simply ignoring final cause, but denying it, right. Modern science moves from saying like, rather than saying we don't care about the final cause, they actually say there is no final cause. We are all just sort of colliding atoms, survival of the fittest. We'll just, who knows where this, uh, this evolutionary process is going to take us. There's no telling because there is no telos. Uh, that is the move that then translates societally into this question of uh, everything that I do should be because of my choice, not because of my obligation, not because mm-hmm. of my nature, but because of my choice. So this is the the uh, you know Promethean liberal man who has made gradually everything a matter of choice, as Phaser says. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say whether or not to kill his offspring, whether to be a man or a woman or some novel gender he has concocted out of a, out of a personal fetish, and then general whether to submit to natural and divine law. Special yeah. divine punishment may follow, but it is not required to bring this disorder crashing down. He even he cites the Repu- uh, Plato's Republic in saying that when you have this type of order, eventually it slides into tyranny. Um, and I, I think he's, I think he's exactly correct here. I mean, cer- certainly you could, you could write a lot more, but he's limited on word count here and he doesn't want to write too much more, but I think w- the thrust of what he's saying is exactly correct. Yeah. And, you know, ha- have you ever, have you ever articulated these kinds of things and then had someone kind of accuse you of, uh, buying into the slippery slope, so-called fallacy? Um, yes. my, my response to that has been, where's the fallacy? I, right. I mean, it really, it's really hard to see. I mean, I, I, I get it. Like whenever we're thinking in terms of like, whenever we use turn, I mean, he uses the word inevitable in here and, right. and I, that's a strong word, but I think he backs it up. I think he backs up his claim and I think Deneen largely does too. Um, well, the other thing about slippery slope fallacies in quotes is that the slippery slope is not itself a logical fallacy. There's no, right. there's no failure of argumentation in a slippery slope objection. All it's saying is, Hey, you need a limiting principle. Uh, and if you don't have a limiting principle, that's a good thing to have. You should have a limiting principle on your, your, you know, your predictions for the future and what will happen or your prescriptions for the present. 
but the slippery slope, it's, the slope itself is not a, it's not a logical fallacy. You know, it's not a red herring or a straw man or a, you know, no, no true Scotsman. It's not an actual logical fallacy. It's just right. a way to, it's a way for people to avoid arguments that make them uncomfortable by saying, oh, well, if you take this to this logical extreme, but most of the time, uh, there is, there is no logical extreme following the principles that you've laid out in an argument because there is some limiting principle that, you know, doesn't extend uh, ad nauseum. So. Right. And I, I mean, I'll, I also point to things like in some ways the, the slope is way slipperier than I thought, you know, I mean like 10 yeah, years ago, maybe I was prognosticating this or that. And then I wake up now and it's like, Oh my gosh. I mean, it was, it, it's much yeah. crazier than I could have imagined. That made the slippery slope, Andrew extends from, uh, tossing the tea into Boston Harbor all the way to the IRS hiring, hiring 70,000 armed <laughs> IRS. I'm just kidding, but, but not really. Right. Well, and, and let's, we, one thing that we should do is, you know, not fail to be somewhat realistic. Um, one of the things that I, that I liked about the end of Deneen's book, uh, and, and I think there's a different end that I like about this article that we can talk about, but, um, you know, the thing about the end of Deneen's book is, is he's not saying like, okay, well, let's just, let's just go ahead and tear Time the whole scrap thing down. the whole project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we've got it. We, it would actually be very bad. The more things fall down, the worse it's going to get, not better. Now, that having been said, let's start thinking about what might be next. Like, who knows how long from now, 100 years from now, who knows, whatever. It's perfectly fine and fair to start to start thinking, maybe even to start yep. planning. Um, yep. Maybe even to kind of slowly try to enact certain things through the political system that we already have in place. Yeah, you know, we're beginning to hear a little bit more of that, like some of these like common good constitutionalism, people, common yeah. good constitutionalist people. Yeah. Yep. Um, why not? Let's think that way yeah. and not and not be too utopian about it, um, but just say, OK, well, we've got a system and there's certain things that are very good about it. There's certain things that we enjoy about it still um, that would be very bad if suddenly they were taken away. But we also see the writing is kind of on the wall here. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I uh, I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was asking me what I think about Adrian Vermeule. And uh, Adrian is this is sort of the the godfather of common good constitutionalism and is certainly one of these post-liberal order types of guys. And I'm very sympathetic to a lot of what he says. Again, not everything, but, but a lot of it. Uh, and so this person challenged me on that and said, you know, so you think that, uh, or no, I think that, I think they asked me, why do you agree? And I said, well, I do think that I'm sympathetic to, to Vermeule and Deneen and these guys who point out that there are flaws in the American founding and the way that we conceived of, you know, this sort of all important emphasis on individual liberty and freedom. There are flaws with the, the entire way that's sort of baked into the American project. And this person said, so you would tear down the entire American Republic? And I said, no, of course not. That's not, I'm not interested in tearing anything down. And I also think that, you know, what we have is, is, is not a perfect government, but, but it's a system that worked for a long time and I think can work for a lot longer, but we do need to yeah. be conscious of, of how exactly that looks. And I think we also have to be equally clear that it's not working right now, right? The, the political, the societal yeah. system that we have in place that is uh, just over 200 years old is not working. It is, mm -hmm. it is fundamentally broken in serious ways and we need to think seriously about how to fix that. So no, I don't want to tear the whole thing down. Right. I think that America is, is a, is a wonderful place. I think that uh, or at least has been a wonderful place. Uh, I am proud to be an American and I have no desire to tear down the American Republic or the, the vestiges of our constitutional system. I think the, the constitutional system is good. I think it can be better. And I think yeah. we should be clear headed and clear eyed about saying that. Yeah. And I, patriotism is a virtue. And I think yeah. that um, we, whatever we do, we should do because we love our country. I mean, yeah. it, that's, that is, um, it, it is natural for a person to love his country. 
Um, and so, you know, by making these critiques, even about our founding, and I'm sure there's still plenty of things we can appreciate about our founding, but um, it's not it, it's not being anti-American. It's not sort of trying to substitute uh, what we are uh, for some, you know, some alien thing. Like, for example, you know, creating some artificial monarchy or something, you know, I mean, may, you know, yeah. maybe, who knows, 500 years from now, maybe we'll have a king of America. But um, that doesn't seem very reasonable anytime soon. So... Um, yeah, if I could, um, maybe link this to a, uh, to the, to our previous discussion about the queen, mm -hmm. the recently deceased queen of England. Um, I think she, what we were talking about, you know, she, she stands for a time bygone in which the individual and the individual's desires was not the most important thing. And she really embodied that for her whole life. She, if you know anything about her childhood, I mostly do because of the crown, right? Mm -hmm. You know that she did not want the crown for herself. She never wanted to be queen. That was not on the radar until her uncle abdicated and her father ascended, right? And then her father died. And then she just by default became the monarch of England. It's not something that she wanted. It's certainly not something that she sought until relatively in her life. It was not on the radar for her to have that. And yet she stepped into the role knowing full well she did not want it because she thought that her country needed her. Mm -hmm. And so she subjected herself to this life from 1952 all the way to 2022. Uh, that's 70 years of being the monarch constantly in public eye. Uh, all the drama of her family life constantly in the public eye, never being able to really pursue in a, in a private way her various hobbies and desires and passion projects and all of this, really giving every ounce of her time and strength to the British people because she placed duty over her sense of self. Uh, and that is something that we don't know how to do anymore. We are, in the words of uh, Phaser, uh, just a society of sort of atomistic onanists. Our, yeah. our highest priority is what can I do today to make me feel better? Mm -hmm. How do I pursue self-actualization today? We don't stop to ask, what does my country need from me? What does my family need from me? Even more importantly, uh, most importantly, what does God need from me? That's the most important question. Right. And I, I think Elizabeth tried to answer those questions and she answered them very well. And that's why people, people love her. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what we're missing. So yeah. as we mourn the loss of Elizabeth II, we're really mourning this, uh, this ideal that she embodied and lived out in a very visible way for the entire world to see. Yeah. And here's where I think Phaser lands us with, uh, something of a, a, a small bit of hope, you know, um, I mean, Queen Elizabeth, was uh, to back up to that for a second. I mean, she was a Christian. She was somebody who knew that um, that her reign only made sense. It only made sense for anyone to bend the knee to her because she bent the knee to the Lord, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, Phaser makes the point here that the one thing, you know, uh, you know, individuals are corrupt, societies can be corrupt, all these sorts of things. But God's providence will not fail. So mm -hmm. we have to lean into that. And if we believe that the church is the body of Christ, that the gates of hell will never prevail against it, then the path back, the path forward, whatever way we want to phrase it, is through a spiritual renewal. And we don't need to be daunted by the difficulty of that task, but that really does have to be our top priority. Yeah. Um, and there I think he's picking up, he doesn't quote him or anything here, but there I think he's picking up on... Um, things like T.S. Eliot's idea of a Christian society and and others who were kind of thinking that way around the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. A lot of that got kind of put on hold because of World War II. And then, you know, the whole world changed so drastically after that. But I'm wondering really if it's sort of time to come back around to thinking, um, to thinking in those terms.
Yeah, it very well may be. I think I have no more comments on this for right now, Andrew. Any, any closing thoughts before we move on? That's it. All right. It is finally time for recommendations. What do you have on the docket for listeners today? All right, Zach. Well, I told you the other day that I have been, uh, some of my colleagues and I have been following this um, this kind of, we're, we're doing this, this kind of project where we are learning through this thing called optimal work. Um, it's, you know, a little bit of a kind of corporate thing. Like you sort of learn how to be more productive in the work that you do and all of that sort of thing. But I like that kind of thing. I like to learn. I like to sort of grow in the work that I get to do and be more focused and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's also sort of helping me in other aspects of my life. It's a program that was developed by this guy named Dr. Kevin Majors, who, um, teaches at Harvard medical school. Now, I believe he's a Catholic. He's a graduate of the university of Dallas, um, from undergrad. Um, and it's just like a very holistic thing. It's it, talking about like being mindful, reframing, thinking of challenges as opportunities. And then most of all, um, it advocates using this thing called the golden hour, which is a little bit like a deep work kind of thing. Or like there are, there are a lot of programs like this, like, you know, you, where you sort of learn to kind of focus over a long, longer period of time. But this one is called the golden hour and it really resonates with me. I'm really benefiting from it. So I just encourage people. He's got a podcast called the golden hour. And um, there, he's, he, there are various things you can find on YouTube. But this podcast, The Golden Hour, is audio only, is uh, full of a lot of interesting stuff. I'm making my way through it right now. I love that. Yeah, you texted this to me uh, just earlier this week, Andrew. And uh, I'm looking forward to diving into it because um, it, it sounds great. I love these ideas of integrating, uh, integrating your work into your life in healthy, balanced ways and also being really... Uh, productive in what you're trying to do. So yeah, and there's no uh, silver I, bullet on these things. You know, you just sure. at some point there are always times when you have to just sort of take the meat and throw out the bone, or you know, there's always ways you have to kind of adapt these things and not put too many eggs in in that one basket or whatever. But yeah, I like yeah. it. It's really helpful. Totally makes sense. Yeah, I'm going to check it out for sure. I'll link that in the show notes to our listeners who want to check it out. My recommendation definitely a different flavor, uh, but maybe maybe uh, interesting reading nonetheless. Um, there's a site called The Ringer, theringer.com. I follow a lot of their podcasts and read read a fair amount of their stuff. Um, uh, they do a lot of sports and pop culture. And one of their writers until very recently was a man named Jonathan Sharks uh, in his mid-30s. Uh, and about a year and a half ago, Jonathan was diagnosed with cancer, a very aggressive form of sarcoma that uh, ended up taking his life uh, just last Saturday. So Jonathan... Uh, passed away last Saturday evening, and uh, he mostly in, in his in his work at the Ringer he mostly did podcasting, uh, especially in the final year year and a half after his diagnosis. But he wrote several pieces, and two of them in particular are just phenomenal and uh, will probably make you cry, uh, but in a good way. Jonathan was a committed Christian, and he died uh, being firmly convinced of what matters most. But he had a he has a young wife and. Uh, a fairly, fairly, uh, newborn son. I think maybe his son is one or two years old now. Um, and, uh, he has his first piece called the long net of the soul that he wrote shortly after he was diagnosed with cancer when he realized it was a very serious cancer and would probably, would probably kill him. And then he has another one called, does my son know you that, uh, he wrote, as I understand it shortly after he was sort of re after his first round of treatment had failed. And it was very apparent to him that it was going to take him sooner rather than later. Uh, and it's a reflection on fatherhood, on cancer, on being a person of faith, on you know, questioning God, uh, wrestling with the biggest questions of life uh, as you stare at your own mortality uh, in the mirror in your 
you know, early to mid thirties. So really remarkable a story, uh, definitely read with tissues nearby. Um, I will also say that, you know, it was touching the, the ringer crew on the Bill Simmons podcast, which is one of the top podcasts in the world. They had a whole episode that was a tribute to Jonathan Jarks and Bill Simmons and several of his staff writers, um, talked all about Jonathan and what he meant to them, in their life. And, uh, it was a moving reminder of how much you can influence, uh, one person's life. Uh, so, you know, to link back to our previous conversation, Andrew, none of us are living atomized existences, um, entirely, you know, we, we might be living more of those or more atomized existences than we would have lived 50 years ago, but we are still relational beings. We are in the words of Aristotle, social animals and everything we do, uh, you know, bears, bears fingerprints. We carry fingerprints and, and, uh, and put them on our, on the colleagues and friends and family and neighbors around us. So it's a, it's a poignant reminder of that. Um, and I just definitely encourage you to pray for the repose of Jonathan's soul as well. He seems like a wonderful person and I didn't know him personally, but I really, I admired his work and liked his, uh, liked his podcasting and really, really admired those two pieces that I will link in the show notes and I encourage you to read those. So a bit of a downer for the recommendation, Andrew, but, uh, those are, those are good pieces nonetheless. Yeah. You shared that second piece with me, Zach, and, and it was extremely moving and it definitely got me thinking about just how interesting it is in the Bible that we're specifically told to care for widows and orphans. And yeah. this was a concern that Jonathan had at the end of his life. And in a sense, it's kind of an invitation to that. And it's something that I'm, I'm feeling a little convicted about. Um, yeah, for who sure. are those people who, who need that care? Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Well, that is it for, uh, for this week's What a Week. We did not receive any listener feedback this week, at least nothing that came into my inbox. So I again, encourage you, if you have something to say to us, even if it's just hello, would love to hear from you. Zach at creedalpodcast.com. That's just Z-A-C at creedalpodcast.com. Also linked in the show notes. Uh, and I think that's it. So we'll be back next week. We've got a guest on the show next week. So look forward to that. Uh, and we're going to try to get Ed Fazer. He's not the guest for next week, obviously, but we're going to reach out and see if he'll come on the show. So maybe we'll get uh, Ed and he can talk more about perfect world disorder and uh, his affinity for the sneaker pimps. So all right. Thanks so much for listening, watching another episode of What a Week. Until next time, God bless you.